You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. I am uh, Andrew McDonald, Drew McDonald. I am the uh, professor at Wheaton College all the way down in Chicago. You'll have to apo- I have to apologize. I have just finished about 14 hours of driving over the last little bit to get here. Uh, as anybody would know, the drive is never fun, especially with little kids in the back seat um, for the entire way. But it's a joy to be here with you guys today. Um, and we're going to be jumping into Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. And would you stand with me as we read God's word? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but not, or look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. This is the Lord, or this is the word. You can sit. So, our focus today, what I wanted to talk about is Paul's call to unity. Uh, this passage, this passage is one of the most dissected and studied in all of the New Testament. In fact, no more scholarship has been written about this passage than any other passage in the New Testament. One scholar called it the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Uh, another one said you could spend multiple lifetimes studying this passage and still not read as many books have been published about just this passage. Uh, more on this than any other, uh, mainly because we find in this what's called the Christ hymn, Uh, one of the greatest expressions of who Jesus is, the gospel conveyed in a a very short uh, piece here. And the purpose of this is Paul's exhortation, his call to unity. And so I wanted to focus first on uh, what is our call to unity? What is the purpose of unity? And to help understand our, our kind of driving thesis for today, I wanted to tell you a story about uh, right after I had just had surgery on my, on my arm. I had just had surgery where I couldn't really use my left arm. I couldn't raise it above my head. Um, but as any self-respecting man decides that nothing like that's going to hold me back, I'm going to still be able to do all the things that I need to do. And so my wife had asked, uh, my wife had wanted us to hang a new chandelier chandelier in the hallway. Uh, and she was gone with the kids. And so I looked at the chandelier on the ground and I looked at the uh, available light socket at the top and I looked at the chandelier on the ground and I looked at my arm uh, and I said, yeah, I could do this. And so I lifted up the chandelier and I had come up with this really smart way of hanging this chandelier with basically one arm. I had uh, gotten the grounding wire and I had got it pinched at the top and so that the chandelier was hanging from the grounding wire so that I could just use one arm to then screw in the rest of it. So about a 40 pound chandelier is hanging from a grounding wire. Um, for anybody out there who's ever done any electrical work before, does this sound like a smart idea? No. So I, the smart person who knows nothing about electronics or electricity at all, hangs this thing from the grounding wire and I leave to go get the screws because of course now I step down off the ladder, I've accomplished my goal and I go to get the screws and as I'm in the garage grabbing the screws, what do I hear? A giant crash as the chandelier has fallen to the ground and shattered all over the place. Little, uh, should surprise nobody that my wife came home uh, and saw the broken chandelier out on the side of the road. Um, And I am no longer allowed to do any electricity work in our house because of this desire. 
I want to submit to you that's how most of us live the Christian life. Most of us live with one arm tied behind our back. Most of us have learned how to compensate. We're still moving along, we're engaging in life, we're getting through, we're reading our Bible, we're going to church, but most of us are living our life with one arm. We found out ways to kind of compensate to make it work, but just like how I was hanging this, uh, this, this chandelier, how that was an epic failure, oftentimes a lot of the suffering we encounter in life, oftentimes the very uh, difficulties that we face are because we're trying to do the Christian life, not the way it's supposed to. And in fact, when we read scripture and we hear things like Jesus say, I have come that you might live life and live it abundantly, we say that doesn't sound like my life. That doesn't sound like what I'm experiencing. If you really knew what I was experiencing in my life, you would see pain, depression, sadness, a constant failure to succeed. You would be seeing, a, a, you'd be saying, I see the words in the text, but I don't understand. And I want to submit to you that part of the reason for this is that the church has fundamentally, in many ways, we misunderstand what unity is. We think unity and community, we think that those things are the product of the mature life. We think those things are the product of growth, that if I can just get myself together, then community results from the Christian life. Whereas scripture, again and again, we're going to see Paul talk about it here in Philippians 2. We're going to see Paul say, no, 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 you've, you've inverted it. Community isn't the product of the Christian life. Community, unity is the foundation. It's the basis of the Christian life. You cannot flourish. You cannot succeed. You cannot live the calling to follow Jesus unless you do it in community with other believers. And this is why Jesus says, one of his last things he says, his prayer for the disciples in John, as he's about to leave, he prays for their unity. This is why Paul again and again calls us to unity. It's not, hey, this would be nice. It's kind of like that. It's not extra seasoning on the Christian life. It is the very gateway to it. So we're going to dive into Philippians 2 here. And so we begin with the first one. I, don't know, I, want to, I wanted to start... This, is, this passage is really sectioned off into two big sections that we're going to hit first. The first part here, and Paul inverts this for us. Most people, when Kai preaches here, he gives you the explanation, the illustration, then you get to the application. And Paul being um, uh, 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 just uh, a, flaw, a fly in the ointment decides to flip this around on us. And he gives us the application first, and then he's going to jump over and talk about the explanation, the why. And so first, we're going to dive into 2, 1 to 4, and we're going to see Paul's call to unity. And then we're going to get into the explanation, the justification, the basis for it. Why? So let's jump in. So the first one, so in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... You, you see immediately these four ifs. Can you jump to the next slide? We see these next four, these four if statements here. And these are, in some ways, rhetorical questions. Anybody here who's a parent has asked their little children these rhetorical questions about whether or not, do you, uh, do you, uh, do you think I love you? Uh, these, any person who has ever engaged a little kid before is very, very, you're very, very cognizant of the rhetorical question. And Paul is asking if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love. And what he is saying here is the basis of the Christian life, these, these experiences of the Christian life, the, the, the basis of your faith. If you have actually encountered Jesus, you would see each of these things, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love participation in the spirit, and affection and sympathy. Paul is saying, essentially, has Christ, the first one, has Christ changed your sense of purpose and meaning? The word here, encouragement, is really better understood as exhortation. Uh, the idea here meaning like, has Christ given you a meaning and purpose? Have you, if, you've, if you have walked by faith, if you know Christ, if you've lived as a believer, has your understanding of meaning and purpose changed? Do you have meaning in your life because of Christ? 
the answer should be, to each of these should be yes. The second one, any comfort from love. Sorry, go back. The second one there, any comfort in love. Has Christ's love been comforting? We live in a world where love is often changed and defined and re- rearranged, but at the heart of it, for the believer, has Christ's love meant anything to you, to be truly and deeply loved, not on the basis of what you've done, but who you are, as an image bearer of the Father. Are you changed because of God's love, because of Christ's love? Again, the answer is easily yes. Any participation in the Spirit. Here, this is a word, koinia, partnership. Uh, Really common, it's used uh, a, a dozen times in the book of Philippians alone, this idea of belonging, Do you have belonging in Christ? Has that changed? Your sense of identity, belonging, that you're a part of something. And last one, affection and sympathy. Have you grown in your love for people, for the world, for those who are hurting? When you see hurting on the news, when you see hurting in your neighborhood, does that change you? You see here, at the beginning, we see meaning and purpose, love, Partnership and belonging, affection and sympathy. These are the basic building blocks of a changed life, of new life in Christ. Have you experienced any of these things? These are the central building blocks of a new life in Christ. When Paul talks about the life in Christ, these are the central pieces. If you are a Christian, if you claim to believe that Christ has risen from the grave and has paid the debt for your sin and that you are clean and risen with him, These are the basic building blocks of a relationship, of being found in him. And Paul is saying, have any of you experienced this? Every Christian should say, yes, in some sense, I have experienced these things. Christ has given me meaning and purpose. I don't know where I would find my meaning and purpose without him. Christ has changed my, uh, Christ has given me love that's not conditional based upon what I can do. Christ has given me a sense of belonging. I belong to this church, to these people. I'm not floating out in a sea of of isolation and loneliness. And then affection and sympathy. uh, Christ has given me a love for this world, has given me a love for people. All of these things are the basic building blocks here. And then we jump over to Philippians 2.2, where he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. See, the if here gives this window here. He says, if you have done all these things, then complete my joy. Paul is actually not really here talking about, hey, do all these things that we're going to talk about in unity so that I can feel better. He's not really saying here, hey, complete my joy because I'm really in the dumps right now. You see, because the book of Philippians is one of three books in the New Testament that Paul writes that are called the prison epistles, meaning that Paul is writing this book to the Philippians from jail in Rome, Um, meaning that Paul is, at the end of his life, we think the book of Philippians was written somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D., Uh, And Paul is writing this from jail. He's about to die. Uh, In the book of Acts, this happens after the book of Acts. And Paul is spending every single day chained to a guard. Eight-hour shifts of the Praetorian Guard are chained to Paul. So Paul is sitting in jail with a guard chained next to him on eight-hour shifts coming in, and that's his life. And Paul writes to the Philippians this book of joy while he's suffering in jail about to die. And he's saying, complete my joy. He's not saying, hey, I'm really suffering. I'm in the midst of a difficult time right now. Can you guys just get along so that I can have some peace? Rather, what he's saying here is he's laying the basis of if you have these things, if you claim to follow Christ, if Christ has changed you, if you've encountered the risen Christ, then complete my joy, meaning ultimately, push forward to the deeper things, the fullness of, grasp hold of the fullness of the Christian life. Don't keep on waiting around in the kiddie pool, getting by. Stop doing things with one hand and just getting by. Complete my joy by seizing hold of the abundant life that God has for you.
And notice here, he says, now we get to the basis of, of what unity is. We start to actually look at what he means by unity. What does it actually mean? And he says, being of one mind, being of one, uh, of one mind, uh, having the same love, being in the full accord and of one mind. We see here, this is one mind, one love, one spirit, and then one mind again. It's this idea that at the beginning, the first one is this idea of being of one mind, united in our ways, our purposes, our foundations of thinking, not just uniform but united. I often think about when, we, when the Olympics come and we're watching the rowers start to row and they're all rowing in the same direction in unison together, each in person independently. Um, Paul is very, very cognizant of the mind, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This idea here is that unity isn't this uniformity that we all look the same and we all dress the same. One of the greatest things about church is that you can come into the church community and we can have a variety of expressions, a variety of dress, a variety of, of ways that we look and sound. But when we talk about a being of one mind, it means our orientation. What do we think about? How do we think? What are the the basis is the, the building blocks of our thinking, that we have the same building blocks that we build on together. And then being of the same love, um, love in the New Testament, and especially of the early church, is this idea of orientation of our desires. Think about it like an arrow that's pointing. What we love is ultimately what we go towards. What we love is what we oriented at. Our loves hold us captive. What you love in your life is most evident if you just look at what you think about, what you do. Where do you put your time and your energies? Even now as I'm up here talking, where are you feeling the driftings go? Loves pull at our heart like the wind at a sail. And the Christian faith, the, the Christian community, be, to be united is not simply to be united in our minds, but to be united in this pull, this love, this direction, that ultimately, even as we disagree, we are pulled back together by a common love of Jesus Christ. This loves that pull at us. And then being of, being in full accord, this word for full accord here is often, you might have a in your Bible as being of one spirit. And again, we have the picture of the arrow. If the mind is the, is the, is the outside, is the pointing, and the, the, the love is the way that pulls, the spirit is the source. That every single person in the church, that unity ultimately flows from the fact that each one of us here has the same spirit in us, the spirit of God. That is one of the hardest pieces of the Christian faith when it comes to conflict. How do we have conflict with each other when we know that at the beginning we have the same spirit that dwells in each of us? That should God, Paul is saying here, unity begins from the source, the, soul, the spirit that indwells us. It is pulled by the loves that we have and it is guided towards the thoughts that we have. Soul, spirit, mind. Paul is saying unity flows as we are all united together. And then notice here, he then jumps down to not. Do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant than other. See, Paul lays out the paradigm for this world. You see, everything in this world is oriented towards one thing. Up. It's oriented towards up, upward. What can I build? What can I succeed at? What can I amass? What can I platform? What can I have for myself? It is oriented. Everything is this big circle of the self that everything is about us and me and mine and everything, all the measurements we have of this world are all about how much you have gone up. And here, in, in any church, there is this tension, this struggle that we all have to base authority, to base relationship, to base success on what you've done. Not, not morally, but 
re- in reality, what your bank account looks like, what degrees hang on your wall, what land you own, all of these things, everything in this world, all of, like, look at the way that, that people that in politics and celebrities and in every facet in business, how they compete with each other. It's ultimately who comes over and slaps down the business card and theirs is the highest. I have built more. I have gone higher. And it's always who is the biggest until somebody bigger comes along. And Paul here begins by saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, because Paul is saying that is the template for the world. When we enter into the world, when you begin in the world, this is how we understand success. When I said at the beginning, the flourishing life, if we surveyed 100 people out in the world, what is the flourishing life? What would they say? Sitting on a beach with a mimosa? Um, having a penthouse over Central Park. Think about what you, when I say the flourishing life, what comes to your mind? Everything always in our world is oriented around these things, ambition and conceit. In fact, this word here for conceit literally has this idea of emptiness to it, of empty glory. And you see, Paul later on in Philippians 3 is going to throw his credentials against every single person in the room. You right now can think about every credential you have in that upward, everything that you've built. If we were putting down business cards here, who would have the best one? Paul in Philippians 3 is going to, he sets you up here where he says, oh, well, I actually, I've amassed the most. I'm, I actually have done a lot with my life. All these other people out there, they're slackers. Paul in Philippians 3 eventually gets to actually, no, you haven't. I have the greatest. In our terms, Paul in Philippians 3 says, I basically had 10 PhDs and I had amassed a huge fortune and I was at church every single Sunday. And when it came to religion and morality, when it came to finances, when it came to celebrity, when it came to authority, when it came to power, Paul beats everybody. And Paul sets you up because what he says is, I had all of that and it was for me the selfish ambition or the conceit. It was nothing. Because Paul understands all of these things, it's a mudslide. You get up a little bit and you fall back down. You scramble up a little bit and you get back down. And this is why we are living through an epidemic today of emptiness. Because you cannot fill an ocean with building. You can't. Paul is saying, Paul is warning you, pleading with the Christian, you are saved. Stop behaving like the world that builds out of the hole that you're in. Because you're going to add one rung to the ladder and then the next rung to the ladder and realize that you're actually 10 feet lower than when you started. And the crash that happens. Paul said, I had it all and I continued to fall. The Christian life is Paul pleading with you right here. Do nothing out of selfishness and selfish ambition or conceit. He's not saying don't do that because it's mean. He's not saying don't do that because it's stupid. He's saying don't do that because you're hurting yourselves. He's saying don't do that because it's empty. It's, uh, we, we gave my daughter a uh, Easter bunny for Easter a few Easters ago, and she saw it, and it was there for all day. We told her she could have it at the end of the night, and she broke into the Easter bunny at night, and as any kid looked at it, and it was, what, what do you get when you get from the store, and it's an Easter bunny that's made out of chocolate. As a kid, you think this thing is this big, huge eat chocolate. It's going to last me for weeks, and you break into it, and what happens? It's empty, and her look of betrayal and rage. It's like we had just ripped her soul out of her. And this is the picture of everything. Paul uses this word here as conceit of this empty glory. Isn't that a good way to describe getting to the mountaintop of these buildings and finding out you've actually gone down? This emptiness. And Paul is pleading with us here. You see, in terms of meaning, in terms of love, 
in terms of belonging, in terms of affection, this building that we have, the world offers us an answer, and it looks right. In our eyes, it looks reasonable, right? Success, white picket fence, kids, money in the bank, it looks reasonable. If I just get that next level, then I'll have it. But what Paul says here, not only are you hurting yourselves, but when you build, you inherently lose your love for others. You are not only crushing yourself, you crush others. And Paul is talking to a Philippian church here that is loving others astronomically. The Philippian church was going through abject poverty, and they still sent Paul money for being in prison. The entire book of Philippians is written because Paul gets a gift from them and sends back this letter. And yet, they were struggling with this. They were loving other people. They were trying to do good, but they were struggling with this desire for glory. And Paul writes to them, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but think about other interests. This word for humility here is actually really unique. It doesn't happen outside of the New Testament this early. And it's one of the testaments to the fact that the Christian faith really is one of the, one of the introductions of the idea of humility, that it doesn't make sense. Our world, our world uses words like be humble. We like humble. We like humility, but we don't actually like it. The world says, yes, we, uh, humility is a virtue, but when the rubber hits the road, they don't actually like it. And that's because humility outside of the cross makes no sense. It is completely foolish. And so it takes Christianity to introduce the very word of humility to the lexicon because they didn't have an idea. Why in the world would I think about other people more than myself? In the Greek world, like ours, it was all a race to the top. So if I help you and think less of me, who's going to help me? If the goal is glory, why in the world would I think about you? It was so foreign to them, they didn't have a word for it. And the New Testament essentially invents it for them. And so Paul gets here to finally telling us that let each of you look for your, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he says, this is the point. This is what humility is. This is the crux of it. Hum or, uh, what unity is, is ultimately looking to the interests of others, putting them above them, loving them, and pouring yourself out for them. Not to a point, but entirely, sacrificially, difficultly. And if you're hearing this, and you're thinking, man, I stink. I need to do better. I really need, I, you know what? I need to do better. Let me just, let me just, okay, hang on, hang on. Let me just buckle down and let me just do better. Just give me a second. Just let me do better. I can do this. I got this. Let me go back. Let me, let me spend some time, psych myself up in front of the mirror and let me get back in the game and let me do it. Let me propose. You fundamentally misunderstand what the gospel is. And that's what Paul is saying. Because now he's laid out this entirely difficult road. Think about others more than yourself. Don't you know that if I do that, I will never get partner? Don't you know if I do that, then I will get run over by everybody? Don't you know that the people who do that are suckers? Don't you know that I know a guy who did that and he's 70 and he's still working the same job and he, it's terrible? Don't you know? That is, you're right. If you try to do humility based upon your flesh, it will crush you. This is very much like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives in Matthew 6, 7, and 8 a list for the flourishing life. And if you try to live out that list, it will kill you, literally. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to crush you. 
If you're reading it as your devo- in your personal devotions, and you're like, okay, okay, uh, better for a rich man to get through an eye of a needle than to get heaven. Okay, sell everything. Okay, uh, uh, okay, um, and uh, need to give away all my property. Need to love every person, everything. Okay, it will crush you. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to crush you because it's supposed to lead you to the cross because Jesus fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. And here, and here, we see the same thing. Paul loads you up to crush you right here. If you're feeling this, it's designed to crush you. All to get us to the next verse, the pivot. So let's jump to the next one. The pivot passage. 2.5. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see... This mind, again, we see this mind. Remember, it's not just mind. It's mind and love and spirit. It's all-encompassing. Have this idea, have this orientation amongst yourself. Have this this desire for unity. Let it be all-encompassing. Let it be the gateway for the Christian life. When I think, how do I live? I don't live in isolation. I don't live for myself, but I live for other people. The entire orientation of your life. Have this amongst yourselves. And then he says, amongst yourselves, which means that it's not just you. We're doing this together. And then finally, the big piece, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This construction here, in Christ Jesus, is the center of Pauline theology. The center of Paul. Paul uses this idea here, in Christ Jesus. If you're ever studying through the epistles of Paul, circle every single time he says, in Christ Jesus. You'll be circling the whole thing because he says it again and again and again. It's the center of it because Paul never leaves the road to Damascus. Paul never leaves the road to Damascus. Paul, if if you've read your New Testament, Paul, breathing threats to the church, an enemy of the church, Saul the Pharisee, is breathing threats, and he leaves to go hunt down more Christians. He's already killed Stephen, and he's on the road to Damascus, and what what happens to him? This is the call and response part of church. All of you people out there, what happens to Paul on the road to Damascus? He meets Christ. He meets the risen Christ. New Testament scholar Michael Byrd says, at that moment, the the Pharisee Saul dies and the apostle Paul is born. Paul never leaves the road to Damascus. That I have died and Christ now lives in me. Paul isn't speaking metaphorically. He's speaking in truth that he is no longer that person, that Christ now lives in him. And I want to jump over to the picture. This is Caravaggio's conversion on the way to Damascus, uh, one of my favorite Renaissance paintings. And what I love about this painting in specifically is that up until this point, the Renaissance, the Reforma- the Renaissance and, the, and the medieval period had done a ton of pictures of, of St. Paul's conversion. And in Every single one of them, they were like the Sistine Chapel. You see Paul on the ground and the angelic choirs up above and they're singing and it's beautiful. And you think, man, this is beautiful. Paul has encountered the risen Christ. And Caravaggio goes completely the opposite way. He paints a very dark picture. This is Paul on the ground here, having being confronted by the risen Christ. That's a stable hand, not Christ there, who's holding the horse, concerned for what's happening. And Caravaggio does a lot with, dark, with light and darkness. There's very little light. If you ever see this in person, it's very dark. I've, I've, I've made it a little bit brighter here for us. You see, because for those of you who do have never met the risen Christ, if you look at this just through the eyes of the world, it looks very plain. Like if you were showing this to your friend who's not a believer, doesn't know anything about the faith. And they just saw this, and you had no way of knowing what the title was. They would say, man falls off horse. Super great. What's next? But for the believer, for the person out there who has encountered the risen Christ, this is, we know what's going on here. You know what's happening because it's happened to you. For those of you who have encountered the risen Christ, everything changes. Going all the way back to that list, your meaning, your love, your belonging, your affections, 
They change. Paul, in this moment, is meeting his Savior. And with the eyes of faith, we see the angelic choir. We see what's going on. You see, because the eyes of faith see the ladder upward of this world, and we see it for what it is, the mud pit. And Paul is about to say, you have this. You have this mind. You have this desire, this love. You have this transformation, which is yours in Christ. Meaning, not just you have it metaphorically, but that you are a new creation, and Christ dwells in you. Paul uses the word in Christ, meaning literally, the spirit dwells in you. You are not your own. You are the new creation. The old is washed away, and the new has come. This is who you are. You have this. It's not something you have to go out of here today and say, okay, here's the list of every person I need to be nice to for the next 10 days. You don't need to go away and get this. You go away and you have this. So what does that mean? Let's jump to then the Christ hymn. So Paul's going to tell us what this means. And how is he going to tell us what this means? He tells us through the gospel. This is the reason why this passage is studied more than anything else in the New Testament. It's called the Christ hymn. There are uh, three Christological or Christ hymns in the New Testament. John 1, uh, Colossians 3, and Philippians 2. And they're called the Christ hymn because the early church sang these songs. You see, our Bible, your Bible that you have in your hand, uh, oftentimes we, we don't understand the, the way that it was created, um, the order that it was created. See, the, Paul's epistles actually come before the Gospels. They were written before the Gospels. Not, they weren't written before them in terms of the, the, the events, but Paul writes the book of Philippians in 62, we think that most of the Gospels were written in the late 60s and early 70s. Before then, the way that the Gospels were conveyed, the way that they were taught from church to church to church was through orality, oral traditions, songs, liturgy, stories. It's why the book of John reads like a book of stories, because it was. It was a compiled together list of stories. And so how did the gospel, how did, how did churches keep the gospel alive? Part of the way was through hymns. And so this is one of the earliest hymns. Paul is not the author of this piece, although he amends it. It's kind of like re singing Amazing Grace, and then the, the Chris Tomlin version kicks in, and for all the older people, you're like, ah, this doesn't sound right. Um, somebody's added stuff to this. Um, so Paul takes an early hymn, and he adds some pieces to it. But every person in the Philippian church would know this hymn. They would have sung it. They might have even sung it before the letter was uh, read. And it's so important because every Christ hymn conveys the gospel story. And here Paul is giving us the opposite of what happens for us. The opposite of what happens for us. The descent to follow Christ and the risen and the, and the rise that happens after. And at the heart of it, Paul says, the basis for this is at, is, is, the, ba the reason why he gives us the gospel is ultimately because at the heart of it, Paul asks us, what is the hardest, most challenging thing about being a Christian? The reason why he goes back to this, he could have said anything, but why does he go back to the gospel story? Because Paul understands at the centerpiece of it all is what is the hardest piece of being a Christian? I want you to think about that right now. I want you to come up with your own answers. You don't need to shut them out. I'm a teacher. I usually like the back and forth, but I understand preaching. I'm not allowed to do that, or I'll keep you here till lunch. But I want you to think about what the hardest thing for you as a Christian is. It might be doctrinal. I just can't get over that creation thing. It might be ethical. Human sexuality, something else. It might be sin, anger, lust, greed. No. Paul understands what the hardest part about being the Christian is. And he roots it in Matthew twenty-two forty-two. 42. 
You see, in Matthew 22, the Pharisees have come to Jesus and they are bombarding him with all of these questions. Every question that you think you would have for Jesus if you met him. You try to stump Jesus. They come to him with uh, uh, questions about marriage, questions about taxes, questions about sin and adultery, questions about worship, about ritual. And they think they've stumped him every time. It's kind of like Lucy with the football. They think they've got him every single time. And Jesus just keeps on fending them off. And finally, at the end of the chapter, Jesus gets so fed up with them. And he stops and he says to them, what do you think of Christ? I'm going to channel my grandfather here and say it in the great King James Version, what think ye of Christ? And it stops them cold. That is the hardest piece of the Christian life. What do you think about Jesus? What think ye of Christ? Paul gives us the gospel here because this is Christ. Do you believe it? This is the hardest piece of the Christian life. Do you really believe this? That Jesus Christ, being of very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be of his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, be, taking on the very nature of the servant, being made in the human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, and therefore God has exalted him to the highest place. This is the gospel for you. Do you believe it? And it is not a question of, yes, I do. Well, great. Sermon done. Everybody go home. We're heading to Swish LA. It's a question about, do you believe it when the rubber hits the road? And the reason why this is so connected to unity is Paul has asked you to humble yourself, to descend rather than ascend. And he goes to Christ and he begins with who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be of his own advantage, that they're a thing to be grasped you might have in your Bibles. We oftentimes, this is where English can be a problem when we get into Greek, we, we use this word as grasp and some people have used this in the history of the church to say, oh, see, Jesus isn't God. But the word here for grasped actually means it's, it's a parallel to Adam in the garden where Adam tried to grab hold of being God, actually Christ, who has this already, did not think of this as something that he would hold on to. White knuckling, you have to drag it from my cold, dead fingers. I have a little son who's almost two years old, and we're trying to get rid of um, uh, soothers, and man, trying to get the cold, dead grasp of him over those things, that if you're trying to get that away from him, it's like, he will never let this thing go. Jesus did not hold on to this for the sake of not coming for you. The point to begin with us for this here is that you would hold on to something rather than descend. The beginning, the, the crux, the beginning of humility is, am I going to make this choice of holding on to this thing or to descend? And the reason why Paul begins with equality with God and then descends down to the cross is we see this, ab, what's, what scholars call the humiliation of Christ, the descent of Christ. Nobody in human history, nobody in the history of the universe, the history of all creation has ever descended from as high and down to as low as Christ has for us. From exalted in heaven, to death on a cross. Every single one of those first three verses is a descent, one after another, from Godhead to humanity, from humanity to servant, from servant to death, from death to death on a cross. Every single piece of it. And so we ask ourselves, what is it that we're holding on to rather than descending with him, what he has done for us? In this, Paul takes very much care, ultimately, to hold three things together for us. This is why this hymn is so important for us as believers. One is the full divinity of Jesus. He counted equality with God, something to be of, uh, being in the very nature of God. This idea here, morphe in the Greek, this idea of form, meaning that it was in the fullness of God 
The same word is used later on in his humanity, the fullness of man, that Christ is both fully God and fully man. Equality with God in its fullness and poured out this fullness into humanity. There is no substitutions. God, in, in our understanding of, of God, our understanding of Christ and the orthodox of the Christian faith, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has not lessened his full of his Godhead. He has not lessened his humanity. And let me end here with us talking about why this is so important. So many people might read this and they might go over this and they say, you know what, that's doctrine. That doesn't really see, you know, how many times have you been in a church where the pastor kind of says, okay, hang on a second, everybody put your school caps on, we're going to talk about doctrine, and I know the glazed eyes are going to come over, and then we'll get back to the really practical things, so just hang on, let me get this done. No, that is the opposite. Why is this important? Why is this so critical to how we can live the Christian life? Let me give you five big takeaways and let's jump to the next slide. Here we can see the descent and raise. First, there is no element of your human fallenness that Jesus has not taken on. When you're lying in your bed in the middle of the night worried about who you are and what you have and what you can do, there is nothing, there is no part of you that Jesus has not taken on and descended with you. Nothing of it. Nothing of your humanity is left for you to take care of. Jesus didn't get you to the 99-yard line and you have to punch it into the end zone. There is no merit on your part. Second, there is no element of God's power that is held back and therefore still needing for our salvation. You do not need to go to church to please God, to get something from him. There is no further mediator between you and God. Anybody who tells you that is a snake oil salesman at its highest. Fully God and fully man means there is no part of you that is not covered by Jesus. The great church father Gregory of Nicaea says that all that is assumed is healed. There is no part of you that is not healed. And when you think you are not deserving of his grace... Christ says into that, you are healed. All of you. Every square inch. And it might not feel that way. And into that, the Spirit says, you are mine. Every square inch. And now let's get into this. Number three, there is no depth that Christ has not descended into preceding, preceding us into suffering of any extent. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what your suffering is. I don't know what you think about at 2 a.m. I know what I think about at 2 a.m. I don't know if it's chronic pain. I don't know if it's joblessness. I don't know if it's hopelessness. I don't know if it's a relationship that is broken. But there is nowhere that Christ has not preceded you. As the fire leads Israel through the wilderness, Christ leads you into suffering, blazing a trail. I think about my grandfather who taught me how to snowmobile in the woods of Muskoka and how he would go off and blaze the trail through and how foolish I would be to think that I could ever go off on my own. Number four, there is no depth that Christ will not descend with us. More than just going before you, Christ goes with you through his indwelling spirit. You see this, that Christ has gone down, but he still continues to go down with you. You are not alone. Christ has descended with you. And when he tells you to descend to not engage in the building of this world, to accept default of somebody hurting you, to humble yourself and to care and to serve and to empty yourself again and again and again when the world tells you that you're a fool. Christ says, not only am I going before you, but I am with you, going into that suffering, into that pain. 
There is no pain you can experience that Christ is not there. Not in the chemo ward, not in the ECU. There is nowhere Christ will not go. He has gone down and he continues to go. And finally, and leading us all the way back to where we began, there is a subsequent call for the believer to descend with one another. You cannot get through the Christian life without each other. It will crush you. It will absolutely crush you. And many of you are right there right now. You might look good on the outside. You might smile. You might have the full bank account. You might have everything. You are looking great. And life is just crushing you. Why? Because you're called to descend with one another. The Christian life cannot be lived on its own. It cannot. And Paul, the reason for the church, the reason why, Paul, why Jesus prays for unity, the last thing he could have said for anything, he could have talked about the word, he could have talked about heaven, he could have talked about creation, he could have talked about the law, he could have talked about anything. What does he do? He talks about unity. Why? Because you cannot get through life on your own. So why do we humble ourselves and maintain unity? Why do we care for each other and love each other and forgive each other and endure with each other and as scripture says, forbear with each other so that we might descend not only with Christ but with each other? Unity is not a product of the Christian life. It is the foundation of it. It is the only way you can live it. And my prayer for you as you walk away from this is not to walk away and do better. Please hear that from my heart. Please don't walk away and do better. Walk away and see that Christ goes before, with, and follows you in. He has done this. He has accomplished this. As Matthew says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, it says, all who will come near me, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That is the pastoral vision of what this is. If you're feeling burdened, come to Jesus, descend with him, and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the time to read your word, the time to study, the time to, to worship. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart for one another, that we might descend with you and with one another into suffering, into humanity, that we would pour ourselves out as you have done for us so that we might experience your love, affection, comfort, and joy. Lord, you would complete our joy by being like-minded. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.